0: Well, if you have your copy of God's word, I'm going to ask you to take it and open to Mark chapter 12. Lord willing, Mark chapter 12. We will look this morning at the first 12 verses of Mark chapter 12. We've been in Mark for, uh, for a number of months, over a year together, walking through this. And we've, we've seen Jesus do many, many things. We've, we've heard him teach many, many things. And we've come to the section of this book where Jesus has had this triumphal entry where they proclaimed him to be their king. They wanted him to be the king of their own making, though. They wanted him to deliver them from the oppression of Rome. Then he goes into from there. He went into the temple and he cleared the temple. He cleaned it out. He drove the money changers out and those who were selling and trading of animals in in the temple. Curses the fig tree. And then we enter into this section where the leaders of Israel began to turn up the heat on their challenging him. See, he was a threat to their operation. They had a monopoly on the leadership of Israel and they were given a trust and they had squandered it. And they began here to question. We're going to see over the course of the next few weeks, several challenges to the authority of jesus last week they challenged him and said by what authority do you do these things and he didn't give them an answer he didn't give them an answer because they couldn't answer the simple question of john the baptist was he from heaven or from earth so today we we come back to this text he's still here in the temple and he begins to talk to them in parables the bible says He talks to them, but not just to the leaders of Israel. He's not just talking to the chief priests, the scribes and the elders. You have to remember where they are. They are in the temple square and there are people gathered all around. There have been just you can you can imagine. It's very easy to understand when there begins to be a heated discussion in a public place. What happens? People gather. I remember being in the mall not too long ago. I was in the mall and outside one of those, uh, you know where they do those massages in the mall? It was a dispute between a man and the guy that had had done the massage there for, for his wife. And he, there was a dispute about the time. It was supposed to be more time. He was supposed to take more time there. No, 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 you only paid me for this amount. You know what I did? Lan and Abby were somewhere else in a shop. I just kind of parked out there and just began to listen. I was nosy. I wanted to hear this thing. And if something really went, started to go down, I wanted to see it, you know. And then it, maybe I could have said, I'm a pastor. Can I help? You know. But this is what happened here. Jesus here is being challenged in a public place and a crowd gathers around. Let's look at our text together. Jesus began speaking to the crowd about the religious leadership. Verse one. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. So they left him and they went away. Quickly this morning, what I want to do is I want to preach in a little bit different, a little bit of of a different method this morning. I want to go through and I want to simply tell you the story. I want to show you what's here and then I want to come at the end and give you some application from the text. Typically, we apply as we go through, but today, hang with me, the application for us here all these years later will come at the end. Okay, so just hang with me. Follow along. I want to first of all show you the gracious provision of the landowner, the gracious provision of the landowner. Verse one, notice the plan and the provision in this story. A man planted a vineyard. He put a fence around it. He dug the pit for the wine press. He built a tower. He leased it out to tenants. I want you to notice the plan and the provision in this story. Where does it all originate? Where does the vineyard get its start? Can the vineyard itself boast of its beginning? Can the fence brag about how it built itself? What about the tower? What about the wine press and the pit? Can they boast in anything of themselves? No. You see... This is pointed in Jesus story here. He wants them to see that the man in the story, the landowner, has done everything of his own will, of his own accord to set up the vineyard for success in that land and time. This is all that you needed to do, not in, in a way that this is the bare minimum, but he went overboard to make sure to set it up to succeed, to produce fruit. The vineyard cannot boast of anything. The vineyard exists and is set up to thrive because the owner planned it, he chose it, and he made every provision necessary for it. Now, why? Why does Jesus tell this story in the midst of all that we're seeing, right here in the middle of the temple square? Why does he tell this story about a vineyard? Well, the people standing around listening would have immediately recognized that the vineyard is a very common illustration or metaphor for the nation of Israel. So here he's associating this directly with Israel. And he gets this story, I believe, and other commentators believe, from Isaiah chapter 5. Let me read this to you. You don't have to turn there, but you can mark it and go to it if you want to. Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 5. My beloved, Isaiah refers to God as his beloved, my beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. That word wild grapes is a word that means sour grapes. They were bitter. They were sour. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. Verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planning. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So. The people standing around, as well as the chief priest, scribes, and elders, the Pharisees, they were all gathered around. They would have heard this story and immediately been taken back to the Isaiah passage because they knew the Old Testament. They would have known immediately the similarity between Jesus' parable and this in Isaiah, this prophecy in Isaiah. In Isaiah, the vineyard is fruitless. It only produces sour grapes. In Jesus' story, the marked difference, though, is not that it only produces wild grapes, sour grapes, or no grapes at all. The marked difference is that those that are tending the vineyard of the Lord are wicked. They are corrupt. So this would have been a turn in the story, and they would have noticed it. I want you to notice in verse 4 what God says through Isaiah, not in our text today, but in Isaiah in verse 4, God says there, what more could I have done than what I did? I did everything. I was gracious in my provision. I planted the vineyard. I dug the pit. I built the tower. I made the hedge. I've done everything. And At this point, everyone would have already known that he was referring to God's gracious plan, choosing and providence for Israel. And at this point in the crowd, all but in the hearts of those religious leaders, there would have been warm feelings for Yahweh, for God at this point. They would have all been saying, yes, God has been gracious to us. God has chosen us. He has provided for us. God has sustained us. They would have looked back through their history and known that. And they would have immediately heard in Jesus this echoing of the Old Testament truths of God's providence. But then I want you to see not just the gracious providence of the landowner, but the shocking and wicked response of the tenants. In verses two through five, when the season came, he sent a servant to the the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. This was common. The landowner was not present living there, and he owned the vineyard, and he had those leasing it out, tending it. When the harvest time would come, it was just part of the procedure. It was accepted. It was really expected that the tenants would give part of the harvest to the landowner. It was just part of it. And so he sends this servant to collect what is his, what is due his his name, and they took him, and they beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. Well, again... The landowner says, well, maybe they didn't understand. I'll be gracious again. I will send another. They struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. That phrase, they struck him on the head, literally means they bashed his head in. He sent another. And him they killed. And so with many others. And some they beat and some they killed. At this point, the warm feelings in the crowd about the providence of God would have been would have been it would have come to a halt. At this turn in the story, this would be like someone taking their fingernails and raking them across a chalkboard. What was what was warm and peaceful, and the only response would have been worship. Now we see in this story, all of a sudden, those tenants don't give him what is due him, but they instead kill and beat everyone that he sends to them. It's a wicked and perverted and shocking response. Rather than them giving God what they, what he deserves, the landowner, what he deserves, they beat or killed him. Shocking and wicked as this turn in the story was, though, this was also Israel's history. They had done this to the prophets of God. How many times had God sent prophets to them? How many times had God sent prophet after prophet after prophet to them, warning them and calling them to repentance, calling them to come back from their wayward ways? And what had they done to those prophets? They had done exactly what the tenants did in the story of Jesus. They beat them, killed them. Isaiah, we read his book. But did you know that Isaiah was sawn in two with a wooden saw by the people of Israel? Jeremiah, he was constantly mistreated. He was thrown into a pit and he was eventually stoned to death for being a prophet of God. Amos, who we looked at in Sunday school this morning in the class I was in, Amos had to run for his life. Zechariah was stoned to death. Micah was beaten in the face all the way down to John the Baptist, all the way down to John the Baptist, who was beheaded. This story, as shocking and wicked as it is, it is the very story of Israel's history. Jesus doesn't stop there. He continues, though, to pile on and incite the rage, the response of this crowd. Notice the patient persistence of the landowner. He sent them a servant, he sent them another servant, he sent them another. And so with many others, he had still one other, a beloved son. And he said, they will respect my son. Now, at this point, probably after the second or third servant in the story, the people of the crowd were saying, stop. Don't Jesus, the landowner doesn't need to send anyone else. This is madness. This is foolishness. And when Jesus got to this point and said he had exhausted all other servants. He had one left, and it was his own son. And he decides to send the son because he says, they will respect my son. There must have been a gasp in the crowd. The crowd must have thought, this is is ludicrous. In fact, this is scandalous. I looked up the word scandal. The word scandal means an action or event regarded as morally or legally wrong in causing general public outrage. This is the scandal of the Gospel. God has done nothing morally or legally wrong. But it should appear to us that it was so wrong for the Father to send the Son that it should cause us outrage. I mean, we We put ourselves at the center of things and we say, it's about us. The reality is, the father, the landowner, had sent prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. And they had been killed and beaten and mistreated. And finally, it wasn't just the Israelites. It wasn't just those leaders of the religion. It's you and I. It's you and I, in our sinfulness, in our waywardness. It should should shock us that the Father sent the Son. Because it was you and it was me that He said, surely they will respect my Son. And you and I didn't. You and I still don't. There are times when we still treat the blood of Christ as if it is casual. As if God exists to serve us. And we forget that he is the landowner. That God would send his own son should cause us outrage. Notice then the foolish and wicked response of the tenants. Not shocking and wicked. The foolish and wicked. Verses 7 and 8. Those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard. At first, this doesn't seem to make sense. When you read this, you think, why would they assume that the son's coming? Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. Doesn't make sense. What makes them assume that they would become the owners? Well, We have to assume that they made the assumption that the landowner or the father was already dead. In their minds, why else would the son be coming? We have beaten and killed everyone else he has sent. Why would the father send his own son unless he has died? The son has become the heir. He is now the rightful owner. There was provision in the culture, in the society of that day, that if the owner of the land died and there was no other heir, then those who tended the land would become rightful owners. So in their minds, they must have assumed the father is dead. The son has now come. There is no heir beyond him. If we kill him, we get it all. They would have never attempted to kill the father. They would have never attempted to kill the landowner, but there must have been something in the appearance of the son that caused him to appear weak and vulnerable. We see this in the writings of Isaiah when it says that he had no form that we should admire. He was weak. He was despised and rejected by men. And they must have seen, and I think Jesus here, even in this parable, is showing us that there is this one that the father sent, who is the son, who appeared to be weak, but he was God himself. There was its exactly what the religious leaders were planning to do and what they would carry out. And Jesus knew it. Jesus knew here he was not telling an obscure story. He was telling a story about them. He had pointed to the vineyard being Israel itself, particularly the religious leaders of the day. And here is no, this is no coincidence that Jesus here tells the story about those tenants killing the son because he knew in their hearts. Remember, Jesus knew what they were thinking when they didn't even utter their questions. He answered their questions, even though they were kept silent in their minds. He knows here what they are planning to do and what they would carry out. But after all, that's what he came to do. And this is what they were planning to do and what they would carry out. They would kill the son. And let me, just, let me just take a time out here for just a second. This is what people have been trying to do from that day forward. The philosopher of the 19th century, Frederick Nietzsche, was made famous for his writings about God being dead statement became popular, God is dead. He, de- he declared that God, that, uh, that we had killed God. In the 1960s, Time Magazine published an article. It, uh, it framed that era. And in that article, the, the cover of Time Magazine, one of the first times ever Time Magazine published their magazine without a picture on the cover. It was a black cover and all it had was red words and it said, is God really dead? It picked up on the writings of Nietzsche and it and it furthered it. It it also. Espoused the, the teachings of philosophers and theologians of the day that said we don't need a theos to have a theology. God is not necessary. We can be religious without even having a God. God is dead we come even to our own day. And do you know that in our world today, there are pastors who fill pulpits every week who openly claim to be atheists? What would you do if I stood in your pulpit and told you today, I don't really believe that there is a God, but I want to tell you how you should live your life. You should either get rid of me or you should leave. And go find a church where a pastor stands boldly and says there is a God and he has spoken and this is his word. Thus says the Lord. But forever, let me, I told you I wasn't going to give application to the end, so let me move on. Notice then the just vindication of the landowner. Just when it looks like that the tenants have won, there is just vindication of the landowner. In verse nine, what will the owner of the vineyard do? This was the This was the kind of crescendo statement of Jesus' story. Jesus was the master storyteller. And he's got this crowd and he's got them on pins and needles. He's taken them from warm feelings about God and wanting to worship him to all of a sudden being just appalled at this landowner who would continue to send these servants. And then when he says, what will the landowner come and do? The people of the crowd, Matthew tells us, They yelled out. They couldn't contain it. There was this innate response that craved justice. And they said, he will come and destroy those tenants. And he will take it from them and give it it to another. And you can imagine Jesus. This is how I I imagine Jesus at that point just pausing. And maybe locking eyes with the religious leaders that were there in the crowd. As if to say, those you are supposed to be leading... Have spoken rightly. Jesus has worked them into this frenzy and this innate desire for justice cannot be held back. Then Jesus affirms their answer by quoting Psalm 118. He says to them, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Do you know that Psalm 118, that that he quotes from here, this is the same psalm that they had also quoted from just days before when Jesus had entered Jerusalem and they had said to him, blessed be he, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. It's also from Psalm 118. Jesus is saying, have you not read everything? Have you not read the whole thing? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, but he is also the one whom they have rejected. But they are not the final say because those who that have rejected him, the father has taken him and made him the chief cornerstone. God would indeed come and give the vineyard to others. He would destroy them. This would happen in 70 A.D. The destruction of the temple, Rome would come in and destroy everything to the point Where today, Jews can no longer trace their history. They cannot trace their ancestry back to find out what tribe they are from. Ultimate destruction. Jesus here, he also says that he will come, the landowner will come, and he will take the vineyard from them and give it to another. And we see in this. This is the passing of leadership. It passes from those religious leaders of Israel, and it passes to who? To those twelve that had walked with him, that had learned from him. Those disciples come apostles, and this was so utterly shocking to them. Those in the crowd, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. This was appalling to them. These men, these common men who have no training, these fishermen, this is what was such an outrage to them throughout the rest of the New Testament. If you read Acts, you see this over and over and over again. This power that they had was stripped from them and given to the church. And you and I today, as we continue to follow and proclaim Christ, we also follow in that. The wicked response, though, of the tenants, not the tenants in the story. Jesus now moves beyond the parable, and he looks directly at these in the crowd. And he looks at the Pharisees, the chief priests, the elders, the scribes. And it says that they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people, for they perceived they had, that he had told a parable against them. So they left him and went away. This would have been a great time for them to realize, since they realized he was speaking of them, this would have been a great time for them to repent, to turn, to trust him, to express faith in Jesus as the Messiah, but instead, they leave. They hardened their hearts and they went away. Let me give you three points of application and they will not be long. Okay? This is the story... Now let me give you the application for your life and for my life today as we're here. Number one, God alone has graciously made every provision necessary for you to be forgiven, made right, and to be a blessing to the nations for His glory. It does not rest in your ability, it does not rest in your intellect, it does not rest in your commitment. It does not rest in what you do for the Lord in the church. It doesn't rest in how you speak to your wife or to your children. It doesn't rest in any other thing other than what God alone has done. You understand that? That salvation is the work of God from beginning to end totally. We add nothing to it. And we come to God and we are forgiven and made right and called to be a blessing to the nations, to the peoples of the earth because of what he has done. We sang a song earlier that talked about that he called us out of death into life. He has filled us with power to do what is right. And he one day will take us, lead us to heaven where we will forever say thank you. You see, it's his work from beginning to end. It wasn't just His work in coming to the cross, dying and being raised from the dead. It's His work still in your life today, 2011, when He calls you from the death of your life spiritually. He makes you alive. He shows you your sin. He leads you to turn away from your sin. Trust Him alone. He adopts you into His family. He then leads you through the rest of your life, giving you power to obey Giving you power to bring glory to his name. Giving you the command to go and make disciples of all nations. And it is him and him alone that will hold you all the way to the end. God has made every provision. He has planted the vineyard. He has built the fence. He has dug the pit for the wine press. He has built the tower. He has done it all. Secondly, application, second point is this. Don't ever confuse his patience for his acceptance. See, I would imagine that those tenants, after the first, second, third servant that came and they got no retribution, no no vengeance from the landowner. Maybe they were tempted to assume that because he doesn't come himself, because we are not destroyed, maybe he's really pleased with us. We're okay. And I want to beg you today here, don't ever presume on the kindness of God to mean that you are accepted by Him when you are really not. Now, if you're in Christ and you trust Christ alone, then you should and you can rest in that. But if you personally have never come to the place where you have acknowledged your sin, turned from it and trusted Christ alone, then don't think that because He's not come yet, maybe He's never coming. Maybe there's no truth to this story. Maybe that's all it really is, is a story. Maybe it's a made-up idea to help us feel better about ourselves. Don't make those presumptions. Because there is coming a day when the Father will I'm begging you today to not do what the Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests, and the elders did here. Don't harden your hearts and leave today. Instead, turn yourself over to Him. Receive Him. Some of you today, He is speaking to you and He's calling to you. And it, for the first time ever, makes sense to you. Today, I'm begging you, I'm asking you, don't leave this place without trusting the Lord Jesus. Third is this if you are a Christian here, then you are a tenant of the vineyard of God. God has not brought you into the faith family, He's not brought you into the church for you to become a consumer. He's not entrusted you with all that you have so that he can continue to pour things out on you so that you can spend those on yourself. He has made you a tenant to tend this world, this mission, the gospel, until he comes. And that you would spend your life, that I would spend my life tending his vineyard for the glory of his name. That I would give and you would give to Him what belongs to Him. That I would not spend my life chasing after the American dream. But I would sacrifice here so that when I finally am called to my forever home, I will be there with those that would not have known the Lord Jesus Christ. Would not have potentially been around the throne. Unless someone told them. Romans says, how will they hear unless someone tells them? We come in this place. I want to challenge you. We come in this place and we gather together. We corporately worship through music. Don't sit and do nothing. Don't don't sit and soak and sour and say, well, it's not my style or "It's, it's not my this or it's not my that. Guess what? We're not here for you. We are here to tend the vineyard of God, to give Him what is due His name. You can't come in this place squandering that opportunity all week and then create worship. But as you tend and take your responsibility seriously by the grace of God, You will come out into this place and you will hear the Gospel and you can't help but to respond. You will be like those of the crowd that said, He will come. He will destroy them and He will take it from them and give it to another. The praise will erupt from you because it is what is just and right. This morning, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to do those three things. To embrace those three things. To understand God's done it all. If you've never trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've never surrendered your life to Him, then today I would challenge you to not presume that His not coming yet means He's good with you. But that you would see yourself in all of your sin. Turn to Him. Be forgiven and saved today. And if you're here today as a believer, I would challenge you to see yourself as a tenant and give Him what is due His name. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank You, God, for Your text, for Your your Word, the, the Bible today. God, I pray, God, that this Parable that was told to the crowd about the religious leaders, God, that it would be brought home to those who were here. God, in spite of my inability to communicate the things that really matter and, and that are lasting, God, I pray that you would be our teacher and communicator today. God, that you would take the truth of the gospel and God that you would apply it to hearts and lives here. God, that there would be people here in this place that would come to know you as their Lord and Savior today who would turn from their sin and trust you alone. God, that there would be Christians in this place today that would be have their lives just radically transformed for your glory today. God, that you would draw them to yourself. You would use them for your glory. And God, that we would see ourselves as tenants, not landowners. God, I pray that whatever you want to do, God, you don't need my permission, but God, I'm begging you, I'm asking you to do it. Do it for your name, for your glory. Pray this in Jesus' name.